0: At the outset, I should say that my decision to preach on this text was not only because of Michael's objection to me putting this off for another, another week. That, that was my intention. But as I began to look at this portion in the early part of the week, it really dawned on me that there's so much in this passage that is helpful when it comes to the place of prayer. And so it is our practice on these second Lord's Days to end the meeting with a time of prayer. That time may be short, it may be long, but this is a helpful passage to lead us to the throne of grace and to the place of prayer. Of course, all Scripture has application when it comes to prayer, but there are truths here that I I do believe are indeed very, very relevant when it comes to seeking the face of God. I've said already, Romans 9 is dealing with the subject of Jewish rejection of their Messiah, Christ came unto his own and his own received him not. we see that, we've dealt with that, we understand that. And again, that is not new in God's dealing with Israel, all even from the times of Abraham. There was a spiritual seed within the lineage, the physical lineage of Abraham. That rejection is indeed a rejection that is under the sovereignty of God. It is the electing grace of God That governs the identity of the spiritual seed. And that's the point of verse number 11. When Paul uses, again, initially Isaac and Ishmael, and then Jacob and Esau, verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And so this spiritual seed illustrates the purpose of God according to election. God's sovereign purpose In electing grace. And that has led Paul to emphasize and to explain the sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in election. Those who receive mercy. And if that's you today. You who receive mercy. Do not do so because of your ethnic heritage or your religious performance. It's not about your birthright, nor is it about your practice of religion. It is only because of the sovereignty of God. It's according to God's free will. When it comes to God displaying mercy, there is nothing within man that governs the determinate counsel of God. Verse 11 makes that clear. Nothing man is, or that man does, governs the determinate counsel of God. The display of mercy... And the withholding of that mercy is according to God's good pleasure. That's the parallel. That's what verse 18 is emphasizing. He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy. And the parallel is the same. And whom he will he hardeneth. So when it comes to God giving or withholding mercy. In one sense. There's nothing within man that determines that decision. It's of God's sovereign prerogative in both directions. However, please see this. You've got to keep both these things in mind. We're not discussing different things, the same thing, but from different perspectives. You see, those who enjoy God's mercy do not deserve it. But those who do receive condemnation receive what they do deserve so we're dealing with issues here regarding God's sovereignty in giving or withholding mercy. But for those to whom mercy is withheld, they are damned not because God withholds mercy, but because of their sin. And they deserve the just punishment of their sin. So you've got to try to keep all of this in your mind when you come to explain this or think about it even in the place of prayer. Damnation is due to sin. And is a deserved punishment. Receiving mercy is undeserved in as of God's free grace. But Paul doesn't lessen the sovereignty of God in the hardening of the sinner. We saw the example of Pharaoh. God had raised him up for the very purpose to display his glory. But part of God's purpose in Pharaoh included the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was hardened by God in the sovereign purpose of god exodus makes that very very clear that leads then to the question in verse number 19 thou wilt say then unto me why doth he yet find fault if pharaoh's hardening was according to the eternal purpose of God, how then can god judge pharaoh how can god find fault in pharaoh If Pharaoh's actions are according to God's eternal purpose, how is it his fault? He can't resist God's will. That's what it says, verse 19, for who hath resisted his will? Now, the word will there, of course, is not referring to God's command. God's will is his command. He he, he says, this is what I will. I want you to do his commands. And of course, sinners often continually resist God's revealed will. The will in view here is God's determinative will, his preceptive will. It's the, the will of, of decree involved here, God's ordained purpose. John Murray, in commenting on Romans, says this, The objector rightly observes no one can frustrate this will of God's. There is no one who has placed himself in the position of withstanding God's will. How can God blame us when we are, and this is the language of the objector, how can God blame us when we are the victims of his irresistible decree? And that's the thought here. How can God blame us if we are those who are the subjects of God's irresistible eternal decree? Yes, how? And that's the question. Well, as we consider that, we should note, first of all, an implied confirmation Verse 20. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? The implied confirmation is in the language of verse number 20, almost in the silence of verse number 20. You see, Paul emphasizes that God does find fault. That's the implied confirmation here. Because The question comes, why doth he yet find fault? And Paul does not respond, God does not still find fault. And the implied confirmation is, the objector is right in their question. They're right in their assertion that God does indeed find fault with the sinner. You see, Paul does not answer, actually God doesn't find fault. And then men do have an excuse. Nor does he answer, actually God is not sovereign. He doesn't deal with this question in those two easy ways. Because that's the two options you have. Why does God find fault? You've only two choices in man's logic. Either God's will can be resisted, thereby man is accountable. Or the other option is, well, man is excusable. He doesn't find fault. And Paul doesn't go in either of those directions. No, without denying God's sovereignty, Paul warns the objector to hold his mouth. Verse number 20, Who art thou that repliest against God? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? He makes the point that this objector, this hypothetical objector, is not debating an equal or a peer. This is not, it's not two friends having a conversation in a coffee shop. Rather, this is man speaking against the eternal God. And it's time to hold your peace. We note the context again. We saw it this morning in Bible class. The difference between O oh man and God. Who art thou? Now please understand. If you're, if you're here and you're genuinely wrestling with understanding the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility... God is not denying your honest inquiries. This rather is an argumentative objection. This is somebody who's determined to speak back against God. No, not an honest inquiry. There are very difficult questions here. And so we discussed this in the lobby after this morning, this afternoon service. We can have a frank and honest conversation. But what we cannot do is get to the point that we argue against God. That we believe we know better than God. And we can say to God, you shouldn't have done it this way. Remember Job? Job's confused about God's will. He's confused about God's actions in his life, about his family, his livelihood, his health. He's confused about all of these things. And God doesn't actually answer all his confusion. But when God reveals himself to Job in that portion of Scripture, he manifests his sovereignty. Were you there when? He shows his eternal power and Godhead to Job in the revelation of his will. And he emphasizes to Job, I am God and you are but, O man. And Job's sanctified response, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile, what shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Times in life, we've got to get to that point. We don't understand God's will, his decree. We don't get these things in our minds. But we've got to accept that God is God and we are men. But as Paul deals with this issue, again, he doesn't deny God's sovereignty. Again, if, if God's will can be resisted, then why wouldn't Paul say that? If the will of God is not ultimately determinative in man's eternal destiny, then Paul could have said so. But he doesn't suggest for one second that God's will can be resisted by man's free will. He could have said that. He could have dealt the whole problem very, very quickly. He says, yes, yes, God has made man in such a way, giving them such power in their free will that they can they can fight against my eternal counsel. He does not say that. And yet that is the answer given by most evangelicals in this nation. Amen. So, well, God may want us to be saved, but we can decide for ourselves. Man resisting the will of God. Well, who has resisted his will? And the answer is, no one has. He's right, you cannot resist God's will. But yet he also emphasizes, and this, this is the implied confirmation, he emphasizes that God holds men accountable for their sin. He does still find fault. You see, before we even get to how God finds fault, we should understand that God is not hardening innocent men, but sinners in Adam. Romans 5 makes it clear that Adam was the federal head, and that as Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. And so humanity is born and raised into sin. And as such, those who are hardened by God are not innocent. It's not that God is hardening innocent people, but hardening sinners who delight to do that which is sinful but at the same time there is abundant biblical evidence that God does indeed still hold sinners accountable there are several examples but there are three very famous ones Genesis 50 the situation the brothers of Joseph and Joseph ye thought evil against me God meant it for good God's purpose in Joseph's life, in meaning their actions for good, does not absolve the brothers of their evil. They genuinely thought and acted in an evil way. And God calls them out on that. They thought evil against Joseph. You think of Judas. Again, it's taught in Luke 22. Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me in the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. And there's no question God's will is that Jesus Christ goes to the cross and does so because of the actions of his familiar friends. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. There's no conflict in the Bible writers here. There's an understanding God is sovereign, doing what he determines to do. But there's a judgment and a curse pronounced upon Judas for his actions of betraying Christ Jesus. And of course, the key example, Acts chapter 2, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Christ dying according to God's purpose, ye have taken and by wicked hands. Not by innocent hands, not by neutral hands, not by forced hands or coerced hands, but by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You see, whilst we see God's will as being ultimate and determinative, The Lord does not coerce people to act against their own desires. That's how I begin. There are things here we cannot fully put together. But God does not force people to act against their wishes. The brothers of Joseph did what they wanted to do. The rulers in Christ's day, they did what they wanted to do. Judas does what he wants to do. He is not coerced in that sense. It is not that evildoers, oh, I, I want to do this good thing, but I, I can't because God's forcing me to do the opposite. No, in their actions, they mean evil. They act evilly, and God judges them for their evil deeds. But in his sovereignty, he is able to use those evil deeds to do his good purposes. See, understanding God's sovereignty. Ought not to lessen our burden for lost sinners. See, we're going to pray very soon. And thankfully I'm so thankful to God that our prayer meetings are dominated by a calling upon God to save the lost. And if we if we embrace for one second a hyper Calvinistic notion that God is sovereign, then men are not responsible it will lessen our burden in prayer we will not see men as accountable before god we will not see sinners as those for whom god will indeed find fault we will not see sinners as those who are rebelling against a good god and who will be held accountable for such rebellion but, but I, I don't understand pastor how, how how man can be held accountable if he's sovereign and St. Paul doesn't answer that question. He asserts God's sovereignty. And he asserts man's responsibility. And he says to all of us, put your hand upon your mouth. Both are true. The easy answers are not the right answers. It's not true that man's not accountable. And it's not true that God is not sovereign. We don't have all the wise answered but the Bible's answer, and that's what matters most. God is sovereign, his will cannot be resisted, and yet he still finds fault. And dear unsaved soul, be sure your sins will find you out. If you stand before God on the judgment day, you will not have the excuse of saying, I was reprobate from before time began. You will sin in your own choice. You reject Christ in your own choice. And you'll face a consequence of your own sin if you remain outside of Christ. That's the implied confirmation. But secondly, there is then an illustrated declaration. It's in question form. And of course, the illustration is the potter on the clay. The illustration is to emphasize the power of the potter over the clay. Again, continues, verse 20. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed me, formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Again, this, this image of the potter and the clay is, is very familiar to an Old Testament reader. You've got it in Isaiah and Jeremiah. We could turn to Isaiah 64, but let's turn to Jeremiah 18. And it certainly seems to the case that one of these portions is in Paul's mind when he deals with this illustration. Jeremiah 18. Verse 1, and following the words which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then he went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel that seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. Again, of course, the illustration is being borrowed by Paul, but without it being a direct equivalent, because what's being said here is that the potter has the right to judge Israel and then rebuild. But the emphasis of the passage is at the end of verse number 4 for the potter to do as seemed good to him, emphasizing the sovereignty of the potter over the clay. Verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand. And so taking that thought back to Romans chapter 9, you'll see here the word that's used. It is in verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay and the sense there is is not a power of ability as it is a power of authority now of course the potter has ability he's able to lift up and to cast away that which he makes but the emphasis in our text is that of authority sovereignty the potter is sovereign over the clay the clay cannot resist the sovereignty of the potter obviously and so the potter therefore hath the sovereignty to make of this lump of clay what he chooses to do. And so verse 21 continues. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? One lump of clay. That lump is powerless. And God has the power to make two vessels, two clay pots, one clay pot for an, an honourable purpose and the other for a dishonourable purpose. Again, referring to, to household utensils. Some of which, again, were used in, in, in very clean circumstances. Others were used for less clean purposes. The point, again, the question is that the potter is sovereign as to what the end and what the purpose is of the vessel he makes. And so it is... God is sovereign to make of this clay a vessel that accords with his purpose. Either a vessel made unto mercy or a vessel made unto destruction. Now here the key thing is this. Some people have read this. And they think of this lump as humanity in a state of innocence. Or the clay lump just describing all of humanity. That cannot be the case. We must understand the lump in this illustration is humanity in a state of sin. A fallen state. Humanity here as sinful, not neutral. But humanity as having rebelled against God. You see, that? That's vital. Because only if you see it that way, is wrath then deserved and just. You see, what's that, what happens to this vessel? Well, there are those vessels of wrath who are fitted to destruction, verse number 22. Now, wrath as a concept in the workings of God is always just. God is never arbitrarily angry for no purpose. His wrath is always against rebellion, against sin. And so if this vessel is unto wrath, then it must be seen as a vessel that's in this fallen humanity. And the same thing is also true. That mercy, to be relevant, must indicate that humanity is deserving of God's wrath. Mercy is God not giving people what they deserve for their sin. And so this lump has to be sinful so that some will receive mercy and others will receive what they deserve for their sin. And so God's sovereignty here is seen not over humanity in a state of innocence, but over humanity in a state of fallen rebellion. And so to that end, Paul then reveals God's purpose in in, in the potter's workings. And his purpose is given to us in three ways. Verse uh, number 21, what if God? And of course, these, these what if questions, they're challenging the objector. They are, they're not suggesting these are not true. These are the things that are true. God is, first of all, willing to show his wrath. That is part of God's purpose. God, at the end of all things, will indeed make his wrath visible. And clearly demonstrate it. We will see the fullness of God's character. In that day of judgment when wrath is shown. It's also the case that God is to make his power known. Hath not the potter. God if willing. Verse 22. To show his wrath. Number one. Number two. To make his power known. Now here the difficult bit is. Is the power being shown. In the wrath demonstrated. Like it was in Pharaoh's case. Or may it be the power being shown in the vessels of mercy to whom he made known the riches of his glory, verse number 23. Well, it goes both ways. Because God's power is, of course, shown in his wrath against sinners. He has got authority over them. But his power is also shown in the third purpose that he may make known the riches of his glory. Again, by the way, if you want to Chew on something this evening. If you're at home this evening and you you're, you want to spend time and think about the things of God, you take some time to consider verse number 23. That God's purpose is that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy. What a way it is to describe salvation. That God has saved you. And that He will make the riches of His glory. Known to you his glory, the sum of his perfections, the riches, the fullness of that on you, a vessel of mercy that God would show himself to you. Again, you, you think of the, the language of Paul's prayer to the Ephesians in chapter one, that we might know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is that we might know more of God. What a glorious thing this is that in the gospel, what's God's purpose? That we would know more of His glory. That as Moses says, Show me thy glory. Well, the child of God, we're going to see God's glory forever and forever and forever, and we're going to see it in its fullest sense. That's what God does to those who are the vessels of mercy. So, His purpose one, shows wrath. Two, make known his power. And three, make known the riches of his glory. And to that end, we see God's posture. To achieve these three ends, we see God doing two things. First of all, we see, verse 22, God showing patience toward the sinner. Endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Again, I should say those words fitted to destruction are perhaps the most challenging part of this passage. Who has done the fitting? Is it is it God or is it the sinner? The answer, of course, is yes. Pharaoh hardens his own heart and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But the word fitted simply means that they are prepared to receive the destruction they deserve. Again, this is not unjust. It's not unwarranted. The vessels of destruction, they are receiving what they deserve for their sin. But God shows his patience towards them. He withholds the fullness of his wrath. Why? Show that he might show his mercy towards the elect. He endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Which yet afore prepared unto glory. The sovereign electing purpose of God. He has prepared these vessels of mercy. Who in time will come to know that mercy. You see God has chosen people out of the fallen mass of humanity. Chosen some. That is his sovereign right and authority. I don't say that in a callous fashion. If he had left the whole lump in sin, that would not have been unjust. We could not have charged God with any injustice if he had not saved one soul out of that fallen mass of humanity. But to reveal his glory, he chose to save some out of that mass. He intends to display his glory in showering those people with mercy that those who are the objects of God's mercy will be showered with God's grace for now and for all eternity. And whilst those saving purposes are being realized, he shows a long-suffering spirit towards the rebels by not immediately casting them into hell. This is Paul's explanation of this present scene of time. You want to know what's God doing right now? This. This is what God's doing right now in this time. He is enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath. That he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. See wickedness continues in our time and God is not blind to it. He will judge and damn in his own good time and for his own glory and for his own purpose. And his wrath is withheld allowing time for the gospel to go to the elect. For in they are called, verse number 24, even us whom he hath called. You see, calling is an event in time, not eternity. And so those who are the vests of mercy, they must be called in time. They, they must be born in time. And live in time. And hear the gospel in time. And be called by God's Spirit in time. All of these things happen in time, not in eternity. And thus for God to show His mercy, there must be his, his, his long suffering upon those who deserve to be thrown to hell right now. And so this, this world exists in the sovereign hands of God, in the power of God, in order that the church of Christ is built one by one, soul by soul, to the glory of his name. That's what 2 Peter 3 is about. Why has Christ not come back? Because the Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. There's not going to be one elect soul left outside the kingdom. But they must be called in God's time. And thus, we look at this world and we say, God, what are you doing here? He's saving souls. That's what he's doing right now. He's saving the elect and bringing them to Christ Jesus for the glory of his name. God's not... Doing nothing. He's showing patience that the elect of God may all be gathered into the church of Christ Jesus. We know that the elect are called in answer to prayer and through the preaching of the word. So we've come to pray today and we are praying for God to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. These verses, they're not difficult to understand grammatically. The issue is, are we willing to allow our view of God to be framed by scripture or by our fallen, finite logic? Luther, Luther, Luther says this, sorry. It is not wise for the novice to meddle too much with divine purposes and mysteries. There's a lot of wisdom there. There are big questions. I understand big questions. This is what the Bible says. God is the sovereign potter. He has authority over the entire lump of fallen humanity. And we leave it there. But there is thirdly, and it's very brief, we'll come back to this next week. There is an script expectation. Because as Paul considers the sovereignty of God and his desire to show mercy, he emphasizes that that mercy is shown not to Jews only, verse 24, but also to the Gentiles. Paul quotes from Hosea, and also through, and also Isaiah explain the sovereign purpose of God. Hosea is known as the prophet of grace. Isaiah is the evangelical prophet. And through these quotations, we see two things. We see, first of all, that salvation will come to the Gentiles, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. Again, this verse, of course, appeals drawn from Hosea chapter 2 and also chapter 1. Now, in the context here, in Hosea, it's again, it's referring to, to Israel. But Paul is, is not, he's not robbing it of that meaning, rather he's making the parallel that as God showed favour to a rebellious Israel, so God is pleased to show favour to a rebellious Gentile. It's a parallel here. It's not, it's not intended to be a direct, uh, a direct quotation. Rather, it's the sense of the words. I will call them my people which are not my people. You are not my people. But they will be called the children of the living God. But having emphasised, and we understand that salvation will come to Gentiles, we're part of that company we also see that God will preserve a remnant of the Jew. That's, that's verse number 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. And So what, what about Israel? Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. The confidence of God saving a remnant of Israel. Now, such a remnant... Requires the continuation of a Jewish identity. That there are those who are identifiably Jewish, out of which God will save them. It's an important way to understand, again, the present situation we find ourselves in. Well, what about this nation? They're, they're not the old covenant people of God's. That old covenant is gone, it's finished, abolished. Hebrews makes that clear. But yet there are those who are clearly of the line of Abraham. And they've continued by God's grace through the centuries. But God's purpose for them is not to reestablish his covenant with Israel as a nation. It is to save people out of that and bring them to Christ Jesus. That's Romans 11. That's the point. And so Romans 11, we saw it this morning. Verse 5. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the of grace. You see, God, God did set his love upon Israel as a nation. But in that nation, there's this spiritual seed. Those who trust in God's Messiah. And what happens in the future and in the present is that God continues to save a remnant out of Israel. There are those who are Jewish by ethnicity who have come to believe Christ even today. They heard the gospel. They realized, Jesus, the Messiah, I heard an account of someone who, was, who somebody read Isaiah 53 to him. And the man said, Stop reading the New Testament to me. And he was converted. He says, That's your scriptures. This is from Isaiah. I said, I thought you were reading about Jesus. I was. And he came to Christ. Because that's the only way people are saved. Jewish people are not saved because of their heritage. They're saved because of God's grace. And as God saves from every nation, so he saves from the Jewish nation. Those we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus as the Christ alone. Amen. That's the expectation and we'll come back to this next week and deal with it in more, in more detail and with more care. But for now as we come to pray, we pray in light of this expectation. We see sinners as being accountable to God. Under God's sovereignty but no less accountable. And we see humanity as a mass, some of whom God is willing to show his mercy. And we understand that those who are the elect of God, we don't know them, we can't see them. But we understand there are those who are elect of God and they're called of God in answer to prayer and to the preaching of the word. And so we, we pray for those and they're responsible for their sin. And yet some are elect of God, and they're from Gentile nations, and they're also Jews. And therefore we pray for God to see the Jew and the Gentile to the glory of Christ's name. That's what we do in prayer. That's why this passage is so relevant when we come to seek God's face in prayer. What are you praying for? You're praying for souls to be drawn to Christ from every nation. Because you know of a certainty that God has taken some from that lump of fallen humanity... And said, "I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them my mercy, and I'll do so by calling them to Christ Jesus." So may God help us to apply this passage as we come to pray today for the glory of Christ's name.